I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C. We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we continue The Consent Convo, a public, loving, unlearning, reframing conversation campaign on consent. Throughout the month of October, The Spin explores, interrogates, reframes and reimagines consent with women and men. We talk the personal, the political, the societal and the cultural. We ask, what did we learn? What do we need to unlearn? How do we reframe? The Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Ebony.com. Check out Ebony.com every Thursday. They will post each show plus a piece on the Convo contributors. Consent, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that. Coming up. contributors this week are Lene Denise and Imani Azuri. Lene Denise is a global DJ scholar, a cultural producer and a musical essayist whose work, which she calls Entertainment with a Thesis, has taken her across the United States to London, Holland and South Africa as she researches black social and political movements to present the dynamic range of music of the diaspora. Lene Denise is founder of Wild Seed Cultural Group. Right now, Lene Denise is a visiting lecturer at California State University's Pan-African Studies Department and its Chicano Studies Department. Imani Zuri is a vocalist, composer and cultural worker. She was a 2015 Park Avenue Armory artist in residence. She made her New York City Lincoln Center American Songbook debut in March, celebrating black American women, musicians like Odetta, Sister Rosetta Tharp, Vera Hall, Bessie Smith, Mahalia Jackson, and more. And Imani Zuri was a featured performer at the legendary Black Girls Rock. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Your consent, your yes, your no. What does that mean? Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. How did you learn about consent? Who taught you? How did what you were taught shape your relationship to your body, sex, power, men and women? How did family and culture and media influence that teaching for you? When you did say yes, what informed that yes? We think about consent as clear and absolute. Yes means yes and no means no. Those are our politics of consent, but our practice must take account of our emotionality, how we learn about consent and what informs a yes. Consent may not necessarily be informed by desire. Maybe it's informed by fear. And if so, is it really consent? And how does that shape our relationship to sex, to our bodies? Our pop culture has higher and higher levels of sexual content. More and more of us watch that at a younger and younger age. Sex education is much more than just school. 
but our politics of fear, shame and guilt, especially for girls, persist. They surround us. We talk about a sex-positive environment. The consent convo calls for a consent-positive landscape. So what about the emotional? What about the idea of permission? And how do our notions of masculinity and femininity shape consent for us? What do you know now as women that you might tell your 14, 17 or 19-year-old self? So let's talk the personal, cultural and familial notions of consent and how they shape the ways we learn and love and walk through our worlds and engage with each other. Lene Denise, let me start with you. It's such a loaded question and a, clearly a timely one. Um, well, first, let me start by saying I'm a queer woman. And so um, the way that I have learned about consent has been largely related to how I was socialized to be a heterosexual woman. And so I feel like early sexual experiences with boys were not fully my own. That's not to say that I didn't experience pleasure because I did, but I do remember feeling like following a script. I do remember having curiosity about other bodies, namely other like cis gender girl bodies and wanting to learn more about my own body through the bodies of other women or girls at that time. And so I think the question of consent needs to be one that is layered and one that includes um, you know, a clear experience because those conversations are a little more complex. And so definitely remember hearing um, how important it is to sort of satisfy men. And so I, I learned early on that satisfying men was sort of like a sexual goal for women. And that alone had me thinking of what might be <laughs> the number of sexually frustrated um, Christian straight women. Um, because that consent is complicated by sort of like religious dogma, by patriarchy, by family values, by popular culture that centers cis male pleasure and sexuality. And so I think that consent is, is tied up with, like, as you said, many institutions that we are indoctrinated by, starting with our family, our school systems, um, popular culture, sports, religion. And so I'm still sitting with the question of consent. I do know that as an adult, I'm very clear that consent is directly related to agreement, the agreement between two adults, and that at the core of consent is honest and ongoing communication. Imani Azuri? I'm also queer. I identify as bi. And I think for me, how I learned about consent, most importantly, I think I learned about it first from reading um, kind of coming-of-age books when I was a, a teenager. I learned about the idea of no means no and safe touch and even like the ways in which I need to protect myself as a young person from adults who may be predatory and uh, other people. So that was the first way I learned about consent. For me, you know, I had my own experience of an adult attempting to abuse me. And because of that information, I was able to say no and also report the person to family members. And so the way it turned out was complicated, unfortunately, which is the way it often is in families because of the whole idea of young people not often having a voice around how they experience violence to their bodies. So that's a whole nother story. But I was very thankful for having the opportunity to read. I think when I was younger, there was more things in the culture from specials on TV, and there was more of a conversation overtly about what consent means, what safe touch is, what bad touch is, and things like that. And so I'm really happy that there's been so many moves as of late for this conversation to be 
branched out. As far as sexuality, for me, one of the things I really learned about what Lene Denise was talking about, the centering of cisgender uh, male pleasure, I took a, a course in college that was put on by the Kinsey Institute. And Kinsey did a lot mm-hmm. of research around the expansive nature of human sexuality. And that class was very important for me, even before I knew I was queer, because it helped me to understand the ways in which sex is often talked about is strictly centered around male cisgender pleasure. And in that class, I learned that sex can be a lot of things because people experience and express sexuality in many different ways. And so that has been very important for me as I've continued to explore what my sexuality means and what what sex is and sex isn't. And it's not just around male cisgender sexuality. One of the things that we're exploring around this emotional justice project and expanding the language of consent is to begin to ask what even informs a yes? What are the emotions that inform the saying of of yes? And coming to adulthood and kind of negotiating different experiences to get to the point where consent becomes clear for you can sometimes mean engaging in either behavior that can be emotionally scarring or the imposed, what is essentially abuse, scarring and leaving the legacy of untreated trauma that manifests in how we kind of move and learn and and love and walk through the world. So I'm wondering for you both, when you think back to early experiences, what informed your yes? It's one of the areas that I think about a lot because we have what I feel like is a very absolute, clear politics of consent. We have the yes means yes and no means no. And we're very clear about that. But because consent is dealt with through our emotionality, that politics ignores just the way we have to navigate our own emotionality, the way in which femininity shapes us or the way that's modeled around us to get to what even a yes is. So I'm wondering for you, as you think back, what informed your yes? Lene Denise. I think the first uh, response, the first word that came to my head was curiosity. Um, Just human curiosity. I can't even really begin to pull off the layers of like, sort of like the dominant echo yes that we hear. I am a girl and therefore I should be welcoming various forms of touch from cis boys. But I think that from the music that I was listening to, the conversations I was having with other girls about sex, and interestingly enough, while I was socialized to be heterosexual and to essentially prepare my body for male pleasure, the curiosity that I found and that sort of informed my yes was directly related to the pleasure that the women around me did discuss feeling and engaging in sex. But... I am pretty clear, especially as a person who was sort of like shaped by hip-hop in particular and also just growing up in my home, I think my my yes was informed by popular culture, gender expectations, and sort of like my duty as a human being at times to say yes because ultimately that is what would make me human and what would make me be able to integrate properly, I guess, and be fully conditioned to the point where I am no longer simply being trained to say yes, but participating and kind of being a part of the culture that shapes other people to say yes by then sharing my sexual experiences. So I think that that yes is just a difficult thing to get to. And I think it's a key question because I cannot pinpoint what informed my yes outside of curiosity and socialization. 
And I know that there are many more layers, and I know that we are not accustomed to having the conversations, especially ones that ask, where did the yes come from? We get very, very clear about the no, but when the two are sort of interdependent, which is what I think happens when you are socialized and not really able to get to the essence of your own ideas and thoughts without religion, without family values, without community pressure, you know, I think that that no and that yes becomes blurred at times. And so that's interesting for me. Imani Azuri? These are very deep questions, actually. And and I haven't thought about what it has informed my yes until thinking about preparing for this conversation. I think for me, my early abuse scenarios when I was younger and then leading into taking this class talking about different expressions of sex and also my religious upbringing, I was raised Christian. and And in my Christian upbringing, we were taught that you're not supposed to have, quote unquote, sex outside of marriage. And so when I was a young adult, I had all of these types of things swirling in my mind. But the linchpin for me really was the the Kinsey Institute class because it really helped me to understand for myself what I considered sexuality and what I was willing to experience with other people. And by virtue of my Christian upbringing, because I had such a strong complex around what sex is and what sex wasn't, that gave me a sense of ownership of my ability to say yes, no, or whatever. And so I feel like as I think about my early experience as a young adult, I feel like I really crafted very strongly my choices around how I wanted to be sexualized. And also because I wasn't privileging a particular male cisgender pleasure all the time, it kind of helped me understand other aspects of sexuality and sensuality. And so I agree with Lene Denise, curiosity, desire, exploration, wanting to have intimacy, feeling like I wanted to be close to people in a particular way, informed my yes. But also, as I got older, I've continued to try to understand why of my yeses, too. Because, you know, there are, we can have yeses, but also sometimes our yeses may not be for the healthiest choices as well. So for me, that's been another layer, not necessarily about consent, but about understanding why I make my choices and trying to unpack that so that I'm also making choices that are serving all aspects of myself, my spirituality, my emotionality, my psychology, on and on and on. One of the things I think about when it comes to black women's bodies is history's relationship to our bodies and how I think particularly with African-American men, but of course, enslavement and colonialism was literally all over the world. But the notion of having consent literally taken away from you because your body became property, the legacy of that in terms of how the idea of permission is even explored. And so one of the things we've come up with for this Emotional Justice Project is the idea of looking for pleasure in permission, that being able to find pleasure in permission can help us reframe some of the more toxic elements of how we think about consent and certainly how consent is taught. Because consent, first of all, is, I mean, it's not taught in sex education at all because it's a very anatomical, this part of your body goes here and there's a very heavy dose of shame and guilt and fear, particularly for girls. But I think about with black women and our histories and how those histories and what's been handed down generation to generation may also inform how we say yes as well as how we say No. And I also think about what do we have to unlearn in reimagining consent for young black women from your perspectives? Imani Zuri, let me start with you this time. One of the main things that I think about a lot is how do we reimagine it for young people in general? Because I feel Mm -hmm. like 
part of the challenge is that the way our society treats people who identify as young boys, you know, just very much as if they don't have responsibility and also as if they don't have their own vulnerabilities. Because I do know, I know of several people who identify as male or even trans and beyond who have also had their own challenges around consent and abuse and don't necessarily have a place to talk about it. So I feel like that's one of the first things is kind of recognizing that predatory behavior and abuse can happen to anyone and that if we can remove the stigmas in general and definitely remove the stigmas so that everyone feels like they can disclose or talk or get the support they need. So that's the first step for me is recognizing that it's much more things happen to a lot of different people, uh, unfortunately, from young ages. So as far as young girls specifically, I feel like, this, you know, for me, just like people understanding the importance of their own body boundaries, that people need to recognize that they can't just touch people the way they want to, and also that we don't have to say yes, or young people don't have to say yes. And unfortunately, the times that we're not able to control those scenarios, what type of language can people have so that they can tell someone and get the support they need and not be demonized and victimized or ignored or told to be a liar? So I just feel like addressing the whole overwhelming amount of kind of rape culture ideology that's in the culture all over the world, unfortunately, can help and just unpacking what that really means. And also not being so overly genderized around who is victim, because I know people who've been unfortunately molested by people who identify as women, and I know people who identify as young boys or trans who also have been molested. And so I just feel like trying to complicate the conversation can help to realize it's an unfortunate human experience and then getting to the idea of consent that might help us also have a more stronger understanding of what it means for all of us to say yes with pleasure, with desire, with joy, with strength, with power. Hmm. Lene Denise. I so agree with Imani and was thinking about that very thing around the importance of clearing conversations and not having super gender conversations, although there are specific sort of forms of that are particular to people who identify as black women and people who identify as black men. So I, I understand the importance of making sure that we look at both experiences as much and as close as possible. But yes, definitely remembering, considering that cis boys, men, trans men are also victims of sexual assault. And then the way that community handles the sexual abuse of those who identify as boys and men is reflective of patriarchal narratives that assign words like emasculation to the sexual assault of cis boys and men, which I feel like creates more silence and even less tools to include these stories in the conversation of sexual assault. And I think what happened with Africa Bambada is a perfect example of that, where we simply didn't know how to respond. Hip-hop is where so many people have learned so much about hypermasculinity and, and then the level of loyalty to the craft and all its like homosocial and misogynistic overtones. And then with Bambada, we were thrown into conversations where our ability to hold complexity was, and I feel like still is, severely underdeveloped. So Africa Bambada didn't receive the collective sort of reprimand that Cosby or Nate Parker did. And I just wonder why. And I think part of it was the concern for the image, the well-being, and the public discourse around men who were, or cis men or folks who identify as men who were involved as sexual victims, like we don't even have the language and even in how we learn and tell the story of sexual trauma during the experience of slavery is super gendered. And I always remind my students that at no point was there one 
part of the enslaved population that was sexually harmed and, and abused, that men, women, and children were raped and sexually abused, and that those legacies show up in the way that we are now being forced to deal with them through public figures. My question is, what was the Cosby plantation experience like? What was the Parker plantation experience like? And what does generational, and as you said, Esther, untreated trauma look like in the hands of celebrities? And so I, I definitely think a more nuanced conversation around how sexual assault impacts us all is really important, but also tuning into the sort of silence around the sexual trauma of you know, folks who identify as black boys and men and how the silencing of that trauma to some degree lends itself to the sexual assault against black women. One of the things that is powerful for me is part of the reason why the consent convo is imagined as a public out loud, we call it a loving, unlearning, reframing conversation on consent is that our public conversations have been and continue to be mostly triggered by celebrities accused of sexual assault. And so there's a very specific way in which that narrative moves for a couple of reasons. One is certainly social media allows us to have much more engaged conversations and interconnected conversations around being able to articulate outrage, anger, to connect to others who feel outraged and angered, but also then to be on the receiving end of all the ways in which there is a, a such a lack of language and understanding and empathy around the notion of consent. And because, of course, rape culture is absolutely devastatingly real, part of what masculinity does is to teach women that they are responsible for all the terrible things that happen to them at the hands of men. And that shaping also then infects how we think about our culture. What we also do, I think, is that we then, because of the silencing of so many survivors of sexual assault, the raising of the headline becomes this space for voices that may have been silenced to speak, sometimes for the first time, but also to be triggered by the ways in which a lack of language or a lack of understanding or a lack of empathy or just the ways we've been individually socialized allow us to, with language, actually re-harm and hurt, even if unintentionally, but to actually do that. And then to also put everybody in one space when it comes to the notion of the way assault functions. Because part of what the consent convo is saying is that we have what I call a restorative justice approach when it comes to issues of sex. So it's now let's look at all the tools we can create as a result of sexual assault. And what the consent convo is saying is that if you, a preventative approach is to think about, to begin by saying what is consent in all forms, not just sexually, but in terms of intimacy and boundaries and touch and skin and not just permission, but the refusal of that permission and that refusal not being seen as rejection. So then I think about conflation. Lene Denise, you mentioned Africa Bambata, who was one of the founders of hip hop. Really, that's how he's considered, who was accused by multiple men of raping them over years and years and years. Bill Cosby accused of raping multiple women over decades and decades and decades. And so those names are put right beside and Nate Parker. And as far as we're aware, at this point, Nate Parker was accused of sexually assaulting one young woman. 
And so part of what I think in thinking about the notion of consent and sexual assault as this complicated layer and spectrum is how do we begin to think publicly about not languaging everything together, but requiring the complicatedness of it to actually be unpacked so that it's never been simple. So it's not even that how do we make it complicated? It's realizing that I was almost going to curse, but I'm not going to curse, but recognizing that it is complicated. It's just complicated. And we need to learn language to unpack the complication and be able to identify it, to recognize it. And without that work, we will always conflate the men who are accused of sexual assault, but also the way in which we approach the idea of consent. And I wonder about your thoughts on that, starting with you, Imani. If we think about our own families, you know, or people's families, in that scenario, unfortunately, too Mm -hmm. often, the way people deal with any type of violation, sexual abuse, otherwise, is silence. Silence or denial or anger. And that's also how it's dealt with in any scenario. I mean, if you think about the African Bambada, like Lenegides talked about, the way that that was not handled or handled or Eddie Long or Sandusky or on and on and on. We can just keep naming all these scenarios. And if we can find a way to compassionately speak about these things for ourselves, create more safe spaces for us to talk about it, however we identify gender-wise, and talk about the traumas that we've experienced and learn language around empowering ourselves and that, you know, I, one of the things that I think happened that was very powerful a while ago in the conversation is, is thinking about people as survivors. You know, I, re, I, re, I was involved in college and after college with several take back the night kind of walks and marches and talks. And this whole idea about being empowered in the fact that you've survived these traumas. So that was one way of helping to reframe the stigma And some of the articles you sent us to read to prepare for this, I was really happy to learn that they're going to extend time frame of rape kits and they're going to keep them for a longer time so that people don't have to keep asking for them to be saved in case people want to, while people are making their choice, if they want to pursue a legal recourse. And so I just feel like, I don't know, it's also complicated. I mean, it really starts very intimately a lot of times in childhood homes, like, but that's a whole cultural shift around how are we dealing with consent and how are we dealing with what we call sexual abuse and trauma and on and on and on. Because even if you think about women, men and children who've been raped and abused around the world, I mean, some places aren't even having any conversations around this at all. And so, I don't know, conversations like this are helping to just help people start to try to move through the message you called of even trying to name it, verbalize around it, theorize around it and just put forth messaging that can help us all feel safe to claim our space. And if our boundaries have been crossed, to claim space that we can talk about it and get the support we need. You know, like I said, we're as sick as our secrets. And for me, it's it's been very important for me to find ways to talk about the ways I was abused when I was younger and to think about all of these type of ideas now has been very helpful in my ongoing empowerment. So I just feel like if we can have those kind of situations where people feel more empowered with conversations like this, that's going to help create more of a culture that doesn't stigmatize and make people feel silenced. 
And we also want to make sure that we expand all these different narratives so that the ways people are unique in their, the ways that they're Mm -hmm. unique in the ways that they may have been abused can also be seen and not, they don't have to fit into one narrative because it's all very complicated, like you said, in the mess. So I just want to close this section that's more about the kind of how we all personally learned about consent by asking you both if there was one thing you felt that you had to unlearn in terms of what you were taught about consent in order to engage in a way that served you better, that served you in a way that was more loving, more pleasurable, more desirable? What did you have to unlearn in order to develop a healthier relationship between you and your yes? Starting with you, Lene Denise. I have had to unlearn my own form of internalized patriarchy and the way that that informed my yes and... I think, yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things is, is remembering that, first of all, the unlearning process is a daily one. It's a commitment. And for me, there needs to be structure in place to support that unlearning, whatever that is, because in the unlearning, what we're doing is addressing untreated trauma. In my case, I'm talking about the trauma of being indoctrinated by patriarchy and how that shapes who I am, how I've loved, and what my yes is. And so I think that a lifelong commitment with support, whether it be therapy, whether it be active conversation, whether it be a circle of folks around me who I trust, who love me, who will hold me accountable for not having my yes be informed by that system that we've been indoctrinated by, which is a system of patriarchy. Imani Azuri? I talked about earlier the whole understanding of why my why I'm saying yes and, and doing healing emotional work to make sure that my why's are unpacked. And I feel like the idea of unlearning patriarchy 100% and also unlearning stereotypical narratives that are put forth by all types of media, movies, videos, et cetera, et cetera, that also can inform why people might feel like they want to say yes. And that is about socialization. And so unlearning kind of like these mainstream narratives around what it means to be in in relationships, sexually romantic and otherwise, have been very important and empowering for me. And also for me, unlearning the kind of binary way that, that I've been raised in our culture and also learning to complicate the narratives for myself have been really important in me understanding more and more about my own consent, my own yeses and other people's yeses. I'm Lene Denise. You're listening to the Consent Combo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. I'm Imani Uzuri. You're listening to the Consent Combo. Consent is swag. Consent is smart. And smart is sexy. It's all about consent informed by all the ways you love yourself. And I love myself. The world is a I 
bomb in the street and a gun in the hood and a mob of police and a rock on the corner and a line full of fiend and a bottle full of lean and a model on a scheme, yeah. These days of frustration keep y'all on tuck and rotation. I duck these cold faces, post up, he five four for faces. Dreams are reality's peace. Blow steam in the face of the beast. The sky can fall down, the wind can cry now, the strong in me, I still smile. I love myself. The world is together with big guns and
Consent Convo, a public, loving, unlearning, and reframing conversation campaign on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Lene Denise and Imani Azuri. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. 
I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we're online. Subscribe to The Spin One on iTunes. Time for our second main discussion on The Spin, Tools for Trauma. What is the government doing about sexual assault? In September 2014, President Obama created and launched It's On Us. It was a call to action to recognize that we, me, you, him, her, we, us, must all be engaged in the fight to prevent sexual assault. Here's President Obama from the launch. All these assaults overwhelmingly happen to women. We know that sexual assault can happen to anyone, no matter their race, their economic status, sexual orientation, gender uh, identity. And LGBT victims can feel even more isolated, feel even more alone. For anybody whose once normal everyday life was suddenly shattered by an act of sexual violence, the trauma, the terror uh, can shatter you long after one horrible attack. It lingers when you don't know where to go or who to turn to. It's, it's there when you're forced to sit in the same class or stay in the same dorm with a person who raped you. When people are more suspicious of what you were wearing or what you were drinking, as if it's your fault, not the fault of the person who assaulted you. It's a haunting presence when the very people entrusted with your welfare fail to protect you. The government released a PSA. Take a listen. It's on us to stop sexual assault. To get in the way before it happens. To get a friend home safe. And to not blame the victim. It's on us. To look out for each other. To, to not, not look, look the, the other way. way. It's on us. To stand up. To step in. To take responsibility. It's on us. All of us. To, to stop, stop sexual, sexual assault. assault. Learn how and take the pledge at itsonus.org. The pledge was a personal commitment to help keep women and men safe from sexual assault. It's a promise not to be a bystander to the problem, but to be part of the solution. The It's On Us mandate was to recognize non-consensual sex is sexual assault, to identify situations in which sexual assault may occur, to intervene in situations where consent has not or cannot be given, and to create an environment in which sexual assault is unacceptable and survivors are supported. There's a resource space called notalone.gov. On October the 7th, President Obama signed a Bill of Rights for survivors of sexual assault. It's called the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act. It enshrines specific rights for victims of sexual assault and rape. They include collecting and preserving rape kits, the forensic evidence collected in a medical examination after a suspected sexual assault, Survivors can no longer be charged fees or prevented from getting a rape kit examination, even if they haven't decided to file a report yet. Once the medical examination is completed, the kits must be preserved at no cost to the survivor until the applicable statute of limitations runs out. Survivors will now be able to request that authorities notify them before destroying their rape kits, and they have the right to request that the evidence be preserved. Once the kit is tested, they'll also have the right to be notified of important results, including a DNA profile match and toxicology report. Now, that was followed by a new initiative to address and prevent sexual assault in K-12 schools. K-12 students are from 12 to 19 years old. 
And there's an online interactive tool called A Safe Place to Learn. It has information for schools and is also putting out guidance for districts to consider when developing a sexual misconduct policy. Here's Catherine Liamon, Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the U.S. Department of Education on Sexual Violence and the Challenges in K-12 Schools. Now is our time, and we really need to take this moment to change our national expectation and conversation so that sexual violence is not a rite of passage for our young people as they grow up, is not something that we just expect will happen to our sons and our daughters, but is, is an anomaly and is something that uh, is much less prevalent than it is today. I think it's important to recognize that sexual violence does not begin in college. To our significant dismay, we see very, very serious noncompliance with respect to sexual violence in our K-12 spaces, and in particular in our middle and high schools. We have seen in the last two fiscal years, we've seen a 470% increase in the complaints that have come to us related to sexual violence. So let's talk tools of trauma. This new legislation, these K-12 efforts, presidential power, and the federal response to survivors of sexual violence and the treatment of their trauma. Imani Zuri, what do you think? I'm very happy to hear about these changes that are happening as far as the rape survivor kits and the fact that it's sexual assault and violence is, is being talked about on a national level by President Obama and other people. I think it's very important because it also centers it in a way that it'll, you know, to be talked about more in the media and things like that. And I also, at the same time, think it's still important for us as community activists and organizers to very much keep pushing to complicate the conversation because we don't want some of the things we're talking about, a kind of cisgender understanding or a patriarchal understanding of sexual violence to continue to be pushed forward by the mainstream, which is still inoculating people and not helping people understand the complications of all of these things. So I think it's really powerful. And I also think all of us as organizers and activists have to keep doing our good work to help complicate the the whole questions so that the the conversation can just be more expansive and hopefully more healing and more inclusive as we continue forward. But I think it's really powerful that these things are happening on the national level and it's, it's actually, like, relieving. Lene Denise? To be honest, I mean, I am not a huge fan of incrementalism. I mean, I do understand that the Sexual Assault Survivors' Rights Act will be a piece of legislation that will protect a number of people who have been victimized by sexual assault, and that's obviously a good thing. But I can't even begin to understand where it would start to truly prevent folks from being assaulted, let alone the handling of them when they have been. The system is absolutely designed by patriarchy, and I don't even know where to start this conversation when you have a president, a presidential rather candidate who is, um, you know, who has been taught, I guess, talking about sexually assaulting women and who has been, you know, allowed to continue to run and is doing so in front of those children that will be now exposed to conversations about sexual assault. I don't know if we have the tools, if children have the tools to handle the complexity of how America is presenting itself or the truth of itself, to be quite honest. And so I think that these actions, which for me feel like an afterthought, are important. But again, I think we still need to push. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say, I mean, in doing research for this, 
in, in learning more about this initiative. I did learn that Erica Badu, for example, partnered with a black Detroit-based organization called the African American 490 Challenge. Once it was discovered that there were more than 11,000 forgotten rape kits, many belonging to black women who were victimized in the sports unit. So even these conversations that are happening in, in, in a K-12 setting, I'm wondering um, if those conversations, if those educators, if the administrators, if the actual tools that are being given to teachers are actually including race and gender and class in the conversation, those folks who are a lot more vulnerable to assault in various forms. And so I am a little bit cynical around the steps that are taken because they continue to reinforce the fact that women and the safety of women in particular is an afterthought. And again, pushing back on the idea of only women being victims of sexual assault is an important thing that I'm glad that Imani stands in because where do we include the voices of all people who are victims of sexual assault and other forms of assault? I mean, how how do we really begin to undo this thing outside of legislation, which is why I feel like, and I'm glad that you mentioned restorative justice and transformative justice, community accountability, which I don't feel like are terms that are sort of typically used in our discussion about sexual assault. A lot of times I hear some of the same sort of language of revenge that I feel like creates a situation where people continue to harm and, in fact, are shamed to the point where they do not address the trauma. So I appreciate the federal legislation and the effort, but I am much more curious in what we are doing as a community, particularly as we see, quote-unquote, justice or the sort of assault against people in our community. Like, what do we mean by justice after we have spent the past five years in particular sort of having this interesting relationship with American justice? In that case, do we also have to critically interrogate what justice looks like for folks who are victims of sexual assault? And so I think it's important to create our own sort of like community-based legislation where we are able to hold the humanity and dignity of everyone, where we're able to hold contradictions and complexity, and yes, model, in fact, for the government what, you know, true justice could look like when there is an intersectional lens placed on that justice prior to it being something that is demanded by the victims themselves or by folks who identify as victims themselves. And so, yeah, I just think that these conversations need to be expanded, and I don't know how we are going to teach young people how to grapple with the ongoing contradictions of a person who is running for the highest office in the country who is also a, a perpetrator of, of sexual assault. I don't, I don't know how to have a real conversation without addressing the true sort of racial and sexual history of America and how these legacies show up on all of our bodies and how this dominance and this power is reinforced through a Donald Trump character that we are all being asked to sort of go and take seriously, which sends a serious message to those who are victims of sexual assault. It is staggering to me that you have an outgoing president who is um, passing a bill 
about the rights of survivors of sexual assault, recognizing that the law, I feel, is to some extent, I call it like blunt force trauma to the notion of justice for sexual assault, given what happens in trying to even get a case to court. But insofar as it is one of the tools, it is a powerful one and the bill is welcome. But it is staggering to me that that bill happens in the middle of a presidential campaign, and not even in the middle, I mean, it's almost at the election, where the nominee is an, a self-confessed sexual assaulter of women and yet is still in the race to actually lead the United States of America. And what that says very, very clearly is the United States is by its action again and again reminding women of just how little their bodies, their safety, their sexuality matters to the highest office in the land. And beyond that, because beyond these self-confessed sexual assault comments, what his presence reminds us is that our black bodies didn't matter, Muslim bodies didn't matter, immigrant bodies didn't matter even as they were insulted and offended and disrespected again and again and again. And the fact that all of that can happen, and this is still described as potentially a serious contender to run the empire, reminds us of exactly how stark the odds are and what we're up against in trying to even reimagine and reframe something like consent. Because in the end... What we're saying is we've got to create tools that centralize the voices and experience of survivors. And we have to go to a model that interrogates prevention in the most profound way, in the most profound way. And without that, what exactly is it that we say that we're doing? You tell me it gets better, it gets better in time. You say I pull myself together. Pull it together, you'll be fine. Tell me what the hell do you know? What do you know? Tell me how the hell could you know? How could you know? Till it happens to you, you don't know how it feels. How it feels.
Well, that's your hour. Thank you to Lene Denise and Imani Zuri. Thanks, ladies. Thank you Thank so you. much. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is The Consent Convo, a global, public, loving, unlearning, and reframing conversation campaign on consent in partnership with ebony.com. Subscribe to The Spin on iTunes. It's under The Spin One. And check out ebony.com. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. You're looking, but you better take, take it, it easy. easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. You're good with the sex. You be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniffing the bag ain't last seat. And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm the top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity in the How flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, a ghetto maestro with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better take it easy. Tell you Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex. You be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Plus you know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my supervisors, haters, climbers get scrutinized, applicators, blinded, stupid guys, wicked people choose homicide, drugs of society, heathen, the neck is bogus, misleading, the nigga, nigga, no reading, the antivitos, call Libra, the Chico, Chica, completing, the addiction, fiction, bleeding, and capitalism. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.